0: Okay, are we ready to rock on this eve? Mm-hmm. It's nice. We're going to do a, a spanking all new episode of Hey Kids Comics. Yeah.
1: Spanking
0: me? Everyone's getting spanked but me. I think you've got pre-credit sequence there.
1: Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey Kids Comics. Well, I can't have a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite, which drains Superman of his powers. Wrong, the gold
0: kryptonite's a power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird... Guys, reality. Besides,
1: I can just tell something's
0: wrong. My spider sense is tingling. Your spider sense? I'll oh, stay behind and putter around in the Batcave hey, with crusty old Alfred here.
1: Ah, uh, no, I am no Alfred, so I forget. Alfred had a job. But genius, true, if Clark and Lois get all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Olsen jobs here pretty much going last time. So. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey Kids Comics!
0: Hello everybody. Hello everyone. And welcome to week two of Happy Birthday Superman. I am Andrew Leyland. And I am Michael Leyland. And this is Hey Kids Comics. Um, No preamble this week, have we? I've not done anything interesting this week, I don't think. Have you not? No, no, I've not. Oh, yes, I did, actually. Yeah? Depending upon when this goes up, I did get together with Bill Robinson, hi Bill, Mm -hmm. Sean Engel. hello Sean, and Chris Honeywell, hi Chris, and we did record the first of what we hope will be a special series of two True Freaks episodes on the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Okay. So I think they're going to do one of those every month with a rotating panel of, of podcasting luminaries and me. <laughs> I don't know if I count as a podcasting luminary. <laughs> so check that out when it goes live, because we had a lot of fun doing it. First up, we covered Douglas Adams's City of Death. So, with that preamble out of the way, have you done anything interesting this week?
1: I've not done anything interesting. Read anything interesting this week? No, I'm, st- really. I'm still ploughing through uh, Infinite Crisis. Uh, I've not reached Infinite Crisis yet. Have you not? No. You're still going through the tie-ins. I just finished Day of Vengeance by, is it uh, Bill Willingham? Oh, Bill Fable's Bill Willingham. Yes, which was very good. Oh, right. Oh, well, I, like, keep, I keep being told I should try out Fable's, it, and I never have. It was probably the best miniseries of it so far. Yeah, right. Although I'm up to the Ranthanagar War, which is excellent Ivan Resort. research. Is the story any good? No, I don't, I'm not ready yet. It's by Dave oh, Gibbons. You've you just flipped through the story. Yeah. yeah. It's by Dave Gibbons, so it can't be all that bad. But the art's good enough to hold it up. Ivan hmm. Oh, kiddo, okay. Our first email of this night is entitled "Caught Up," mm-hmm.
0: and it is from Professor Allen. Hi, Professor Allen. Hello. Professor Allen emails into the Fantasticast a lot. Does he? Yes, he does. Leyland One and Leyland Two. Nearly a year after starting to listen to your delightfully northernly Britishly show, I want to announce it to you, to the internet, and to the larger world in general. I, Professor Alan, am now officially caught up on my listening to the Hey Kids Comics podcast. And mostly I've enjoyed them. Thank you for your attention, Professor Alan. Mostly enjoyed them? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably best than we can hope for, really, that people oh, mostly enjoy the show.
1: Mm-hmm. It's better than mostly not enjoying it. That's true.
0: I'd, I'll take that. Yeah. I'll go with that. Our next email is Ben again. Ben Rush got back in touch. Hello, Ben. This time it's called Return of the Mac. And I think he's responding to a couple of things that you said in Hellblazer Part 1. Yeah. Pertaining to one John Constantine, Esquire. And this is me padding for time as the file opens in the email three, that fifty, he sent. Fifty, us. 1.53. Hey! Jobs are good and it's finished. Now it has to open. Oh, right. now it has to open. Great. Isn't the internet wonderful? Eh? It's grand. Yeah, It's internet, hey. brilliant. Yay! Hello, Andrew and Michael. Hello, Ben. Hello. Cheers for the greetings and our wedding. There will be a pint in your honour on the day. Well, a lot of pints. You don't have to have a lot of pints in our honour. One would imagine at some point there will be a toast to, to you, the bride and groom. But we are very honoured to have a, a glass raised in our honour. Aren't you we? can send us one in an envelope send us a beer in an envelope (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the envelope might get to us in one piece Yeah, I would post it and drop it because he's a numpty Um, well well done on a send off worthy of the man himself Ah, thank you thank you very much very kind of you to say so I fear that this letter is going to land during your Superman 75 shows and may scare the non-vertigo listeners away but such is life i played the show three times so far to make sure I give the correct responses to Michael's comments I think he deserves kudos for listening to <laughs> us three times I edit the show and don't listen to it three times I
1: edited these shows and, and you didn't <laughs> listen
0: to them three times so belt it because this could be long Yes, he moved to New York, but my problem was, the greatest thing about John was he didn't need to be in America to have the adventures he had. And it does seem that you narrow a world view if things only happen in America. Response? Because he's responding to your point here. I, yeah. I, I, I had no problem with the email that he sent in.
1: You could just say, I agree with that. I do. However, <laughs> However go on. go the rest of the Justice League doc yes. are situated in New York. It can be a team if their leader's still in England. Is Constantine the leader of Justice League Dark? The self-appointed leader. I was
0: just going to say, because that in and of itself seems to provide a problem Mm. that Constantine
1: would be the leader of such a motley group. It was arguably Shade the Changing Man um, to the ones. Right. But in the new ones, it's John being the John's uh, took over. Because of the whole Steve Trevor appointing him head of it thing
0: right I I don't read Justice League Dark so I don't know
1: well when Jeff Lemay came on board with it because he's teaming up with Jeff Johns Mm. for the Trinity War yeah to tie in Justice League uh, Justice League of America and Justice League Dark together right and so the thing with that is Steve Trevor uh, makes Justice League Dark an official team working for Argus
0: right and is the new Justice League of America boot going to tie into this as well Probably at one point, yeah. Okay, fair enough. John and Zatanna. Yes, there was a previous relationship in the books, as shown by Books of Magic and so on, but the whole John and Zatanna be the ultimate lovers for each other only came about in Justice League Dark Zero by a certain Jeff Lemire. But by this point, I'm now calling that John Constantine. (laughs) (laughs) And he spelt it
1: T-double-N. Very good. Well, say that is, I don't agree with that, I think it came about in Kingdom Come. Right. When they showed that John and Zatanna got married and had kids. Oh, right, yeah. Okay.
0: So maybe they're just playing with what they did in Kingdom Cup. Yeah. Right. While Peter Milligan did start the Justice League Dark Run, he never touched upon the shared romantic past in the small run he did on the book. Right. To the
1: meat of the... rip, Did he? Yeah. Okay. Because they didn't like each other because they had a history.
0: Right. I think you two may want to turn this to Facebook at some point. <laughs> right, to the meat of the reply. John will be 60 in May, and that hasn't changed. The whole Maggie problem, beside Milligan being crap at timelines. Well, rereading Shade 42, my answer is he's just crap at timelines. And he's included lots of uh, panels in from, the email that obviously we can't read on the show. From Shade the Changing from Shade Man. Shade the Changing Man.
1: Which was a great series, I just want to say it was a
0: good... I read Shed the of Man when it first came out. Um, If you stick by the main book, it has John as a punk when Margaret Thatcher first started, and by the second term, he was the John we all know, see issue three. Also, there has been a rebirth of sorts for John every couple of years. Not in a Green Lantern superhero kind of way, but a spiritual and metaphysical idea kind of way. When Jamie Delano came to the end of his room, he wanted to clear the decks for Garth Ennis. So unlike Capes, when you just end with a pic of the hero standing on a building looking grim and a fridge load of death behind him. No, we get hanging out on a beach, then taking a load of magic mushrooms, then going back to the womb and seeing his own brother for the first time.
1: Yeah, with Dave McKean art, so I was a bit confused when I read that one. Oh yeah? Yeah. Did Dave McKean do the, the art for
0: the entire issue?
1: Yeah. Right. So what's going on? It's all dark and I'm sure there's a few lines in that panel, but it's mostly dark and... <laughs>
0: Grim. <laughs> and grim. So at the end, John disappears from the hippie life and returns to London. Garth Ennis did something similar in issue 71, while John was at his lowest, drunk, living on the streets without kit. A shell of a man. He has a haunting by a young fighter pilot, which makes him realise that he can't give up, in an issue we covered in Hellblazer 2. Yeah. Which you all have heard by now, so I hope you enjoyed that. I always thought that this story didn't ring entirely true, because it felt like it was part of the plan to screw with the first of the fallen. Andy Diggle went back to the golden child idea in his story, went, in his storyline, line, sorry, which had John snorting Santa's bone dust. And in a podcast I heard last week, it was supposed to be Jesus's bone dust, but DC ran a mile from that. I wonder why. Uh, I, I can't imagine. What? I can't imagine the, the DC going anywhere near that, even in a vertigo book. Mm. So John takes over the Ravencroft mental home, which had been turned into a hotel at this point, until he won it in a very sneaky bet, and decides to clean his soul using a mirror cage. At this point, the golden one makes his move to destroy John, but of course, John gets the last laugh. Right then, I'll be off. Cheers to the piss-up-mobile. <laughs> and yes, Andrew, I'm still going through the God, I'm 40 bit. I did take Hellblazer 63 with me on my birthday, but I'm having a bigger party soon. Still trying to find a rabbit that can pull the magician out of a top hat. Best wishes, Ben. Thank you, Ben. It was, um, I'm very impressed by your commitment listening to it three times. <laughs> That's more than we listen to it, and we make it. (laughs) The statement we get from our listeners. Yes, thank you very much for that, Ben. I'm very impressed. Mm. Our final email tonight is the return of Chris Keith. Hi, Chris. It's called AVX Random Musings. Hello, Leylands. I just finished episode 3 of the Avengers vs. X-Men and the first Hellblazer. I'll email separately about Hellblazer. And while I've already emailed regarding A vs. X, I found a couple of brief additional points with which to waste your time. But that's what this section of the show's all for, really. Yeah. By the way, Marvel now? Isn't this idea way too similar to the idea that Ted Raimi had in Spider-Man 3? It's hip, it's now, it's Wow! on to the point Scott Summers I totally agree Andy Marvel has had a mad on for Scott Summers and I don't know why they chose him as the decade long whipping boy I'm way behind as I've said on my X-Men reading just finished an issue with Scott Fought a shark and an octopus underneath his and Madeline Pryor's plane What's an octopus I don't know what an octopus is it's like an octopus only it's got green pustules all over its body okay <laughs> issue 176 says Chris I was just going to say that was in Paul Smith's run mm. so that's going back a bit So I have a lot of backstory to catch up. However, the guy was never, ever, ever, ever like this characterisation in A vs X. This guy was the person who was the only graduate of Xavius to still call Xavier a professor. A career brown noser who was really just a nerd. I guess you could say that he was just repressed I know when Whedon was writing Astonishing, he had Cyclops without eye beams who was the ultimate badass when it came to strategy. That take I could believe. Storm did the same thing when she had no powers in Uncanny back in the 80s. However, from strategist to Magneto Junior? Not so much. It just doesn't work, and it reminds me of Mark Miller's handling of the characters in Civil War. I have an agenda. You will fit my agenda. Yes! That's exactly my problem with Civil War. Yeah. I have a point of view. I will pick this character to espouse that point of view. But, Mark,
1: what if that character's
0: never had that point of view? It does not matter! I am a superstar
1: writer! There was something that made me giggle in super Gods about Civil War. Go on. Did well, he slag it off? Surprisingly, Morrison has some nice things to say about Miller, in Does about, he? About his work. All oh, right, Fair enough. There are a few slide digs, but one of them was like, and Civil War could have been a great story about... Um, like oppression and politics and uh, like the Marvel Universe reflected on its own it could have been one of the greatest series Marvel had ever done if it didn't fail remarkably (laughs) well it does it
0: fails on every conceivable level the main Civil War
1: miniseries yeah
0: see you've said let's do it and somebody seconded doing it and I'm against doing it because I've always said the show will not be negative in the sense that we will not start from a negative place yeah we will never pick something that we don't like I like it. But I suppose we have got the thing, though, that you do like Civil War. Yeah. But I just don't want to sit there for seven issues going, this is cack! You might like I know. I find it very highly unlikely I've changed my mind about Civil War. We've already had
1: two episodes where I've changed your minds about Civil War. Yes,
0: but you've never managed to change my mind about Mark Miller's writing. Somewhere along the line, Mark Miller learned that shock value equals sales. Yeah. And somewhere along the line, Mark Miller decided that was far more important than being true to himself as a writer. Now, I have no problem with him making money because I would love to make lots and lots of money. So, I have no problem when he says stuff like, that. I wrote Wanted and I sold it to the film studio for a ton of money. And they made a film that was I, completely different. I from my stayed comic. away from it and they made a film completely different from my comic. But I signed that deal, yeah. I knew that going into it, and I got paid a ton of money for it, fine. Mm-hmm. And then we kick ass, he didn't get paid as much money, but was much more involved with the movie. Yeah. So I don't have any problem with that, and they're his own characters. But somewhere along the line, he mistakes shock value and swearing a lot for deep
1: characterization and storytelling. And yet, the Ultimates was essentially shock value and swearing a lot, but mixed with the good storytelling yeah. and characterization. S-
0: something happened with the Ultimates. Were his storytelling ability and tropes, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. somehow managed to actually tie in with a decent story and Brian Hitch's wonderful artwork. Something happened between the two of them that made that work. Yeah. But since then, he's not had a collaborator who's been able to channel what he's trying to say into the work. And even though some of it's good, like Nemesis... No,
1: I'd say the artists fit his work. Steve McNiven... Like, reflected the shiny but New Times and Civil War. Do you world, not think and... he's
0: Quentin Tarantino without what little subtlety Quentin Tarantino has? In that the all comic of his characters, yeah. yeah, of comics, he said all of his Nemesis sounds exactly the same as Tony Stark, sounds exactly uh... the same as Kick Ass, sounds exactly the same as anything else Mark Miller's written in the past 15
1: years. I'd say there's a slight amount of difference. Slight. We'll take Jupiter's Children. Never read it. Well, it's not out yet. That's why I've not read it. But. I can't read the comic if it's not out yet. No, there's been a preview of it with, um. Is this the one with Quitly Arts? Yeah. Right, so we'll issue 4 out oh sometime before 2491. Well, it should be. But, but the art's looking pretty good, isn't it? But that looks different to Kick-Ass, which is yes, somewhat different Yes, does read differently
0: to Kick-Ass? It might. All of Miller's central characters, to me, sound exactly the same. That kind of snarky, smart-ass, way-too-cool-for-the-room kind of attitude. And he doesn't seem to be able to write anybody differently. No, anymore. all
1: of his characters like that. I think it's the stories that are around the character.
0: But in a lot of cases, there isn't a story around the character. Nemesis is an idea. Yeah. That wasn't the six, six issues of an idea is not a story. Well, there's going to be a sequel. Yeah, but... I think... Do you think that will make
1: it any more of a story, or will he just keep the idea? The idea was, yeah. what if Batman's a bad guy? But the, the, there was an idea behind that, there was a story behind that, but the story only happened in the last issue. Exactly, the story only happened in the last the issue. The big twist in that last yes. issue where there
0: was a story, yeah. But, so essentially what you had there was a six-issue idea that led to a pretty
1: cool twist ending. But that's not a story. American Jesus. Never read it. I rem- vaguely remember reading the first volume in Clint, and I thought it was actually very good for a modern...
0: Movie. For a Mark Miller comic. Yeah. <laughs> but that's faint praise, isn't it? It's good for a Mark Miller comic. That's like saying, that's all right for a Zack Snyder film. Isn't it? It's yeah. just, just, you know, it's that's not a, gl- a glowing endorsement mm. of the work, is it? Anyway, Chris's email... <laughs> Which we, we, we got diverted off by talking about Civil War. Namor, Chris continues, clearly we are in an era where Jim Shooter is not the editor-in-chief. Why would I make that statement? Because Jean Grey had to die for her actions as Dark Phoenix. However, Namor apparently gets a pass. This MFA killed, what, all of Wakanda? And you just allow him into a meeting with the Illuminati? Skipping ahead to New Avengers 2, sorry. Without so much as a repulsor blast to the nuts? So mass murder is okay? Why? Because he previously wore a speeder? Michael Phelps should go and buy a shotgun today. He'd get a free pass. I'm hoping to see this pompous idiot brutally killed, preferably by Superboy Prime, ripping off one of his arms and using said arm to beat Scott Summers. Not to death! Just to agitate his brain and fix whatever is wrong with him that has him acting completely out of character. Shortest inter crossover error. Thank you again. You're very welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I look forward to the rest of Hellblazer, as part one was very good. Oh, thank you. I guess I should get started on that email as well. Certainly beats working this afternoon. Chris Keith. I like it when people write emails at work. Yeah. P.S. Hulk for hire. I want, to, Hulk, <laughs> I want to see Hulk in a yellow spread-collar shirt, silver tiara and chain belt. Sweet Christmas. Uh, smash! <laughs> I quite like the idea of Hulk for hire. That amuses me, and that's it for emails this week. Is it? Yeah, because well, it's to be expected. Really, the Vertigo stuff never prompts yeah. as much correspondence. No one likes Vertigo as, as the as the Superior stuff. So, mm. I suppose that's to be expected. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break
1: and be right back. Word. <laughs> Where did that come from? Oh, your hand gesture.
0: Gathered together. From the far reaches of the internet, our assembled and network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend. Featuring... The
1: Thrilling Adventures of Superman.
0: Golden Age Superman. The Superman Fan Podcast. Superman in the Bronze Age. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Superman Forever Radio. I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Carouser World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The
1: World's Best Podcast. And Radio Kale from SupermanHomePage.com.
0: Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer,
1: J. David Weeder,
0: Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cameron Stoll. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam,
1: Dave Yunus, and co-host Scotty V at SupermanPodcastNetwork.com. Come with us now on a far journey, a journey that takes us millions of miles from the earth, where many years ago the planet Krypton burned like a green star in the endless heavens. Here civilization was far advanced. It had brought forth a race of supermen, men and women like ourselves but advanced to the absolute peak of human perfection. As we near Krypton we see high above the city the magnificent temple of wisdom with its marble columns and burning torches. Jarrell, Krypton's leading man of science, has been summoned to address a special meeting of the Governing Council. White-bearded Roseanne, supreme leader of the council, calls the meeting to order.
0: And we're back. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, Michael's stuffing his face with chocolate biscuits. Yeah. Have you, have you quite finished? Almost, there. Good, good, good. Well, I'll, I'll do my preamble mm-hmm. while you, you chow down. Okay? Okay. All right. you think you can go up with that? I'm okay. Alright, excellent. With the mixing of the K-metal from Krypton story, the Superman strip continued throughout the 40s with the character enjoying more and more success via the cartoons and the radio serial, and these, alongside the newspaper strip, would give the character more and greater visibility. In addition to continuing his humanist endeavours, storylines were expanded to include not only fictional looks at how Superman would fur in the war effort, but also to highlight the science fiction angle mentioned last week. Mr Mixius Bidlik, the imp from the fifth dimension, spelled differently in his first appearance, mad scientists like the ultra-humanite who transferred his mind into a female body, journeys to other planets and the increased reliance on more fantastic villains would become more the norm. Although Superman would still help out war orphans all over the world and in the pre-Cold War era would even help out his Russian World War II allies. In these early days, Superman's concept of the American Way was to help out all mankind, something the producers of Action Comics 900 failed to take into account. The Lois Clark-Superman dynamic would be expanded upon, and we would get our first look at the adventures of Superman when he was a boy, a piece of retroactive continuity that would take a while to be incorporated into the origin story. Towards the end of the decade, Superman would return to crypto, have his definitive origin told in the comics for the first time in Superman issue 53 by Batman writer Bill Finger, and his creators would leave him behind, with Siegel and Schuster leaving National Periodicals employ in 1948. But as the 50s dawned, a new era was beginning for the Man of Tomorrow. Following on from the serials and cartoons, a new live-action version of The Last Son of Krypton was in the works, and the actor tasked with the role was George Reeves. Reeves took the role and his responsibility to children very seriously, but secretly despised the part, believing it to be the bottom of the barrel, and at the end of every season reputedly was given a costume to burn. This would be parlayed into the comics via the character of Gregory Reed, who would play the character in Superman's fictitious world, Superman vs. Superstar from Action Comics issue 414. Reeves would play the part until his death, under what many still consider to be suspicious circumstances, on June 16th 1959 at only 45 years of age. What, I wonder, would Reeves make of his legacy today, nearly 50 years later, when he is still synonymous with the role? In looking up his date of death, I typed his name into Google, and the first image of him that pops up is one of him as Superman. Would he have made his peace with it, as many typecast actors do in their later days, or would he have grown steadily more resentful? Alas, Reeves wouldn't live to see the impact he had on lives around the world. Over in the comics, the popularity of the TV show led to more content. Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen got their own strips, and the legacy of Krypton, Burley mentioned in the previous ten years, would start cropping up with increased regularity. There would be heavy cross-pollination, with stories in the comics appearing on TV and vice versa, and the decade would see the introduction of Bizarro, Brainiac, Titano, Metallo, and the further exploits of Lex Luthor. The action ace would be given a cousin, Kara Zor-El, the Supergirl from Krypton, a pet in Crypto the Superdog, and even Beppo the Supermonkey. He would discover the bottle city of Kandor, a shrunken city of living Kryptonians, even as the storylines would focus more and more on his isolation and loneliness. To combat that, the writers would have him cultivate a friendship with the Batman. Our first tale tonight, however, is one of those cross-pollination stories mentioned above. The Menace from the Stars would first appear in comic form in World's Finest number 68 from January-February 1954, actually on sale in November of 1953, but would be an almost simultaneous episode of The Adventures of Superman entitled Panic in the Sky, which aired in December of 1953. One of the best-remembered episodes of the show, it would be remade as an episode of Superboy, called Superboy Lost, and as an episode of Lois and Clark, called All Shook Up, and the title would be a multi-part story arc in the comics in the late 1980s. The story would also be rewritten in the comics 11 years later as When Superman Lost His Memory in Superman 178. The cover, by J. Winslow Mortimer, has Batman, Robin and Superman fleeing a skunk, I have no idea the relevance of that. I've not seen the cover. It's that, it's Superman, Batman and Robin kind of hanging out, having a day off, you know, there's no crime going on, apparently, at right, this okay. time, and the skunk runs out of them and they all go, boo, smelly, and they run away. Okay. Grand day out, I suppose. Um, <laughs> the writer of the comic is to this day unknown. But the art was by Wayne Boring and Stan Kay, although he was unknown in my research. If if you happen to know, lovely listener, or the writer of this particular story, I would be happy for you to get in touch and let me know. One night, the denizens of Metropolis are startled by an approaching asteroid. At the nearby Metropolis Observatory, Superman stops by to tell the boffins working within that he's on his way to stop the asteroid before it wipes out half the continent. Why he didn't just do this instead of popping round to tell them when they presumably could have seen him through that big telescope of those is a mystery lost to the ages, much like the writer of this tale. The professor exposits that there are unusual varieties of kryptonite on the asteroid and, not to be outdone, Superman exposits that kryptonite, although harmless to Earthlings, is dangerous to him. Superman flies up and decides to smash the asteroid with one blow, which is sensible, but instead decides to hit it with his head, which isn't. The professor notes that Superman has succeeded in throwing the asteroid off course, but Superman himself plummets to the Earth, landing in Metropolis Park, out of sight. Waking up, he wanders around and sees a costume party. Garbed as he is, he believes that he must have been at the party, as he has no clue who he is or how he got there. He remembers the word amnesia, though. Superman looks for ID on the inside pocket of his cape and finds a suit and glasses. He dons these items, even though the glasses don't seem to make his vision better, and despite not having a clue who he is or where he lives, an unerring sixth sense, also called a plot contrivance, leads him to the Daily Planet building. Inside, he conveniently locates Perry and Lois, who tell him who he is, and he decides he must have been dressed as Superman for the party, being as they are pals and all. Later, Clark happens upon a robbery. He manages to change remarkably quickly back into the Superman suit because he reasons that crooks may surrender if they see Superman. The fact that he manages to change in the blink of an eye isn't enough of a clue for our boy, but when the crooks open fire on him and the bullets bounce off his chest, Clark leaps to the conclusion not that he is, in fact, Superman, but that the costume has super properties. The cops arrive and ask where he's been and explain that the asteroid is still a danger as it is affecting the tides and such. However, super speed and bullets bouncing off him aren't enough for this intrepid reporter so he engages in some property damage by smashing a fire hydrant and despite the fact he hit the hydrant with his hand and not the costume he still feels that the costume has superpowers, not himself. He's starting to remind me of those stupid children who think they can fly because they wear a cape. Next, Clark tries to fly and hilariously smashes into a few smokestacks. Realising that these powers could be dangerous, he decides to fix the smokestacks and then vows to follow in Superman's footsteps and tackle the asteroid. It's time for some super feats. Superman zooms around the world, tackling tidal waves, floods and cyclones, whilst back at the Daily Planet, Lois points out that it would make far more sense to just take out the asteroid. Perry says that maybe he's too scared because of the kryptonite on the asteroid, essentially calling Superman a coward, but Superman, or rather Clark, has come to this realisation himself. I'm not a coward, Zod. Sorry, Perry. In an exceptional set piece, Superman tackles the asteroid, smashing it to pieces. Clark arrives back at his apartment, which he found in the phone book, and deduces that something must have happened to the real Superman, and he will dedicate his life to carrying on in his name, but first he must tell the world that Superman died saving them. On his way to the planet building, after calling Perry, Clark is hit by a truck that knocks him over a bridge, and he lands on some power cables. Because he's not wearing the suit, Clark finally realises that he is Superman! He flies to the planet to set things straight. I think my synopsis of that was a little bit more snippy than it needed to be, wasn't it?
1: Well, it was humorous.
0: Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, As with many comics of the period, the splash page is another cover. We're reading this in the Superman in the 50s trade paperback. If you are in any way interested in the history of Superman, these in the trades of which they did what? Superman in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s are really good. Mm. I like all of these. Um, What was I saying? Oh, yeah. The cover, the splash page, sorry, is another cover. In the case of this particular era of comics, a better actual cover than the real one. There are no skunks, for a start. It's a humorous take on the following tale, with Superman looking more like he's falling erratically than actually flying, asking where Superman is, as the crowd, including a perplexed policeman, look in stupefied. That would have made a much better cover than the actual Yeah real thing. I quite like that. I always like the little what's-it that they do in front of the title. Yeah. They always have a big blurb before the title, don't they, explaining what the story's gonna be. I think that's quite cool. Uh, page two. I quite like Wayne Boring's barrel chested Superman. But it has to be said that the panel structure for the first page is slightly confusing. And the word balloon positioning very haphazard, with some of the dialogue swamping the art so bad there's almost no point there being
1: any art. Like the one where it covers Superman.
0: Yeah, there's a balloon there that practically covers Superman. And it's exposition. Good luck, and be careful. Remember, our spectroscope shows strange elements, possibly a variety of kryptonite on that asteroid, and you know what that means. And you're like, yeah, Superman knows what kryptonite does to him. Mm. I get that you're explaining it to the audience, but see, this dialogue on panel two ends up being quite confusing. Perry states that Clark has been gone for an hour ostensibly at the observatory getting a story on the asteroid. We then cut to Superman arriving at the observatory and despite him clearly saying he's been watching the asteroid himself, he's not actually done anything about it yet. Which begs the question, where has he been for an hour?
1: Um, am so skunks.
0: <laughs> Very possibly. Because <laughs> Clark's not been at the observatory and neither has Superman. Now again, they could have fixed this in the dialogue. You have the professor's dialogue in panel 3. Say, now that Clark Kent has gone to file his story, we need to get in touch with Superman. And then in panel 4, you change Superman's dialogue to, I got your message, professor, and I've been monitoring this asteroid on my way over. And then you just have the dialogue play out as it does in the comic. This simple fix eliminates this minor discrepancy. You could even take this opportunity to have the professor explain the presence of kryptonite and its effects, so it doesn't feel quite as exposition-laden. As mentioned last week, Kryptonite, or K-Metal, should have appeared in the comics as early as 1940, but would actually have to wait until a radio episode in 1943 entitled The Meteor from Krypton, but there it was largely used to incapacitate Superman to give actor Bud Collier some time off. It first appeared in the comics in 1949, Superman issue 61, and Luther synthesised some in Action Comics 141, but in neither appearances was it green. In the following issue, it was green, but it still wasn't technically kryptonite. It would appear a few times in the interim, sometimes seen, sometimes not, but by the time Action Comics 161 rolled around in 1951, we were finally seeing genuine kryptonite. In 1958, the readers would be introduced to red kryptonite, thus rendering all previous appearances as green, irrespective of the evidence of their own eyes. Was that a good enough history lesson for you? After page three... A very confusing page. What, panel layout-wise? The panel layouts for this issue were quite confusing, yeah. We set up the scene that Superman is going for a quick punch, and then having him ram the asteroid with his head. Yeah. Did that strike you as a little bit unusual?
1: It did, but it reminded me of the Superman Returns game. We're flying. <laughs> We're flying is literally let's put on a helmet and fly about and hope we don't crash into any buildings. Yeah, it was.
0: You said that was a pain to control that Superman Returns game. It's a bad game. Is it? But it's yeah. can I don't think ever played it for extended length of time. Um, page four.
1: It just looks funny the more I look at it, that panel. What where he just rambles the asteroid on the in his head. <laughs>
0: yeah. Especially seeing as in the, the the page before he's I'll try smashing it with one terrific blow. He doesn't even try punching yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, that's a good idea, that Superman. So yeah. why does he then why does he then headbutt it? Bop it. What's what's with the Glasgow kiss, Superman? <laughs> there is no need for that. You should have just punched it. But alas, he doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. And on page four, it's here really that this story starts losing its way (laughs) and betraying its excellent premise after finding his civvies in the cape pouch which are just stuffed in there not compressed with super compression and thus are leaving an unsightly bulge in his cape he puts the glasses on despite not needing them to be fair the tv version struggled with this as well then in the weakest moment in the story clark is led to the daily planet by an unerring sixth sense could he not have just found ID or a press pass in the clothes pocket? Would that not have just made more sense? You know,
1: maybe our problem with this story is why the writer is left unknown.
0: It's <laughs> a very good point, <laughs> yeah. Um, in addition, Clark bundles up the costume and carries it under his arm. We quite clearly see that he's carrying it with him yeah. as he walks to the Daily Planet building. No one's asking what he's doing
1: with a Superman costume.
0: Conveniently, though... It's nowhere to be seen when he rocks up at the Daily Planet. Yeah. But it's back under his arm on page five, conveniently, when he needs it. Writing like this is sloppy, whatever the era. I'm not willing to give sloppy a pass just because it's the Silver Age. Mm. I'll give them a pass for silly, because it was the Silver Age. But sloppy is is unforgivable, I think. Um, Superman's cape pouch... Was used extensively in the Silver Age, but sadly retired when post-crisis his capes could get destroyed.
1: All right. So how long had he had his um, pouch before this? I could
0: not find, and I'd really spent ages researching this,
1: yeah. I could
0: not find the first appearance of the cap pouch. I think it may have actually been in a letters page, which obviously don't get reprinted anywhere, yeah. because that was the kind of thing that the kids would ask him. Mark Weisinger was the editor, and they would say to him, "Where does he, where does he keep the, um, where does he keep his Clark Kent clothes? Yeah, when he's not Superman." And he would say, "Oh, he has a pocket in his cape." Right. And then once it was in the letters page, it was introduced into the stories. But again, lovely listener, if you know where the cape pouch first appeared, let me know because damned if I could find it. Mm. And God did I pour through books and yeah. internet for that, for that one thing. Yeah. I spent about an hour. Damned if I
1: didn't find you it. You know it's one of those um, trivial facts that probably Michael barely knows.
0: I would hope Mike would know it. Matt Wade would definitely know it. Yeah. I would imagine. Uh, page six. Budgetary constraints of the TV show are thankfully not a consideration in the comics. So we get some truly wonderful super feats. Superman creates a wind gadget which he uses to stop the tidal waves, counteract cyclones and prevent icebergs. The TV show used this time to have Clark really doubt himself, largely due to the budget. But despite that, it still ended up being one of the most
1: special effects-intensive episodes of the entire series. And Superman still ends up bopping the uh, chimney on the head, though. Yeah. He just flies into things with his head.
0: <laughs> it does. It's a well, hilarious well, it's image it's as well. just seventy head puts the smokestack. <laughs> He's obsessed with butting (laughs) things. Perhaps he thinks he's Billy Goat Man (laughs) rather than Superman.
1: See, it it may sound, it may go without saying, but I'm I'm really struggling to believe this is how Clark would act if he lost his memory. See, he's a journalist, and yet he can't piece together what's in front of him, and believes that the costume gives him the powers. Yeah, take away his cape, and he wouldn't be able to fly.
0: Yeah, that was one, the one thing really that made me struggle with this, because he quite clearly, on on page 6, panel Mm 3, knocks the top of the fire hydrant off with his bare hand. Yeah. So surely, investigative journalist Clark Kent would at that point go, wait a minute, (laughs) I've not got anything on my hand, and yet I can still knock the top of that off. Mm. Hmm... But no, he carries on through to the end of the story, doesn't he, believing it's the costume, yeah. despite the fact he's just headbutted a smokestack.
1: <laughs> <sighs> see on the bottom of page seven as well, that middle panel at the bottom where he's cursing the asteroid. He <laughs> just looks like he's cursing the sun, though. <laughs> he's cursing the sun for being too close. Oh, damn you! I'll headbutt you next. <laughs> <laughs> he headbutt the sun. <laughs>
0: oh, dear God. Um a couple of pages of super feats follow and then on page 10 we've got him mimicking Rodan's The Thinker on page 9 I didn't notice that when I was actually reading it Uh, on page 10 the non-budget of comics is nowhere better demonstrated than where Superman smashes the asteroid to smithereens all that being said the sheer spectacle good though it is can't hide the fact that Clark is really dense yeah why you still believe it's the suit after doing so much of this with burst skin is inexplicable for such an intelligent man. The story structure with Superman essentially solving the big threat before the climax is really, really odd and makes the end of the tale very anticlimactic. He solves the big dilemma at the top of page 10. Yeah. Meaning there's two, nearly three pages of story left.
1: Well, I thought the the ending was a bit rushed anyway. I mean, in one panel, he sat down thinking, and the next one, he's smashing the meteor.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's some argument to be made about these stories that there's a lot of brevity in them. Because, yeah. by and large, they were between 7 and 12 pages long. But even then... It's... Yeah, even then, there are elements where this felt really padded, mm. and then elements where it felt really rushed. And surely there was a, a balance between the two that could have been struck. Um, as on page 12, Clark's phoned Perry saying he has news about Superman. Uh, He he thinks Superman's dead. Yeah. And he's going to carry on in his name
1: wearing his costume. I like how he falls on the um, telephone wires. Yeah,
0: he falls over a bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He then goes back to the planet. Sorry, he gets his memory back, as we said, by falling over a bridge. (laughs) A truck hits him. He falls over a bridge and lands on some power cables. And you're like... That was unfortunate. Wasn't it? <laughs> Especially seeing as. Where, where was that truck going? Because it's driving. Into the wall. Into the wall. This looks like it's a dead end. Yeah. What was that truck driver thinking? But anyway. Hey, let's headbutt this guy. He changes into the costume to go back to the planet as Superman, mm-hmm. now that his memory's back. Without actually thinking, wait a minute, this is going to cause more problems than it solves. Yeah. Because once at the Daily Planet, he's got to come up with a reason why he knows what Clark sent... said, sorry. Why he knows what Clark said and why he's got Clark's story in his hand. Mm. And you're like, gee, I wonder why Lois thought you were one and the same. Mm. <laughs> you don't really have an answer, do you? No. He is very stupid in this story. Yeah. Um. See... I don't want to be cruel to this, because I did actually enjoy it, and in many ways, it's an excellent idea for for a story. It's a brilliant premise, and I picked this tale as an example of the kind of cross-pollination that some fans complain about today, but that has been going on since comics started, having extra media adaptations. But the comics telling of the story is actually far weaker than the TV episode. In the book, From Serial to Serial, author Gary Grossman calls this one of the finest examples of 50s science fiction. And certainly, Panic in the Sky is one of the best, if not the best episode of the George Reeves TV series, delving as it does into Superman's character more than any other instalment and pitting him against a formidable threat. Reeves' performance in the show is exceptional, and despite some contrivances of plot, it hangs together wonderfully half a century later. Here the tale is somewhat dumbed down. Clark is almost too dense to be realistic. The danger is never quite as palpable as the TV version, and the climax is botched. In addition, there are too many contrived moments and coincidences, such as Clark holding the costume as he stumbled through the city, but it disappears when he ends up at the Daily Planet, only for it to be back in his hands minutes later, conveniently, just as he needs it. And let's not analyse how he got to the Daily Planet too much. And these are all issues that could have been solved with a minimum of effort. You have Clark find some ID that led him to the Daily Planet. You have him discover who he is before the epic climax. We also see here that the stories in the comic were not as smart or as gritty as the 30s and 40s comics. And this is unfortunate, because the seeds are here for a truly excellent story. And I can see why it's been revisited many times, because this first attempt
1: is sadly quite botched. What did you think of it, Michael? That's not the same thing, really. I thought it was very silly in how it was delivered.
0: But the idea...
1: Yeah. It was an excellent idea. You remember... Panic in the Sky. We did it as Couch Potato two yeah. years ago. Do you remember the episode? Yeah. But it, it's not just an idea that they've confined to just Superman in this story. There's been several like stories where the hero forgets who he is to stop something. Yeah. R.I.P. for example. Yeah. This may have been one of the first times it was done. Yeah. But it's an idea that... But yeah, losing got... losing
0: losing your memory is a staple of 70s and 80s... Television, especially American television. Yeah. And then you, you reached its apex, as far as I'm concerned, with Knight Rider, yeah. where even the car lost its memory, <laughs> which was an hysterical <laughs> episode. Kit forgot who he was. Corruptor. <laughs> <I brag>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a USB port with a virus on. I bet Kit didn't have a USB port. Uh, interestingly, Superman in the 50s trade paperback has another story in it, The Girl Who Didn't Believe in Superman, that was also adapted for the George Reeves TV show. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of that going on in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, As mentioned above, as the strips continued to enhance the mythology of Krypton, and despite the proliferation of a society that wasn't quite as dead as one had believed, the writers would continue to play up Superman's isolation and loneliness. As Adventures in the Fortress of Solitude emphasised this aspect of the mythology, the writers would give Superman a friend and confidant in the Batman. Despite the fact that Superman and Batman, along with Robin the Boy Wonder, Had been sharing the covers of World's Finest Comics for some time, since 1941 to be precise, when it was entitled World's Best Comics. The Metropolis Marvel and the Caped Crusader hadn't actually shared an adventure together until Superman issue 76 in March of 1952, cover dated May-June. Of course, the continuous narrative of comics meant that they were revealed to have teamed up before in World's Finest 94. A previously untold tale of their meeting was revealed in flashback. And of course, it was also revealed that they had met as part of the Justice Society. All of this was magic to weigh as being either Earth 1 or Earth 2. For our purposes, though, the mightiest team in the world is being acknowledged as the first time these two titans teamed up. The cover has Batman swinging in to rescue Lois from a fire, and Superman flies in to do the same thing. This is a job for Superman, claims the Man of Steel. No, exclaims Batman, it's a job for Batman. Lois doesn't care who it's a job for, just as long as someone rescues her. The cover states it's the mightiest team on Earth rather than in the world, but either way, it's difficult to argue. We're reading this from, once again, my hardcover Superman from the 30s, To the 50s, the writer for the mightiest team in the world was Edmund Hamilton. Penciler was Kurt Swan and the inker John Fischetti. In Gotham City, Batman and Robin clean up the last of the criminal wanted list, so Commissioner Gordon gives them the night off. In his guise as Dick Grayson, Robin decides to visit relatives upstate, and the Batman, aka millionaire Bruce Wayne, decides to do what all rich people do when they aren't playing golf: go on a cruise. Meanwhile, in Metropolis, Superman is depositing a dinosaur fossil at the museum and meets Lois for a date. She says she will wave him off tomorrow when he goes on his cruise on the Varania. Clark arrives at the cruise liner, but is shocked to learn that due to the overcrowding, he has to share a cabin with Bruce Wayne. Neither gentleman is particularly pleased with this development, but hey, what can you do? On the dock, however, nosy reporter Lois Lane has sniffed out trouble again. A crook has fired at a truck that has exploded, and he's used the flames as cover to steal a diamond shipment. Lois is caught in the conflagration. Hearing the screams, Bruce asks to turn out the light to turn in for the night and switch to the Batman under cover of darkness, and Clark does the same. At that moment, a shaft of light shines through the porthole and the secrets stand revealed. The duo leaps straight into the fray, and as Superman takes care of the burning truck, Batman rescues Lois. After a quick discussion, Batman deduces that the crooks must have mingled in with the passengers and boarded the liner. Batman and Superman vow to keep each other's secrets and decide that to maintain their secret, they must board the liner in both identities. They square it with the captain and the game's afoot. Lois has also managed to squirrel herself aboard when rather conveniently a woman felt faint after the fire. She says she will tell Clark that Superman is aboard. The duo make it back to the cabin and Clark feigns seasickness and Bruce says he will spend the trip looking after him. Instead of getting on with the case, Superman is far more concerned with Lois snooping around and so arranges for Batman to pretend to be romantically interested in her. Batman agrees, but Lois has overheard the plan and makes a play for Batman just to annoy Superman. In the midst of all his soap opera shenanigans, Superman remembers that they have a diamond thief to catch. He can't spot the diamond with his X-ray vision, but does spot a man with a gun. Batman meets with the man, John Smilter, the electrical engineer, and immediately deduces he's lying as he's wearing the wrong shoes for his job. But without the diamond, they have no evidence. Batman is correct about Smilter, and Smilter is at that moment meeting up with the helicopter that will take him away. But with Batman and Superman snooping around, he decides to take a hostage. Guess who? Go on, guess. Could it be Lois Lane? Correct! Yes, it's Lois Lane. He sabotages the ship and then takes Lois on the helicopter he arranged to pick him up. With Superman left sorting out the liner, he Batman at the fleeing helicopter. Batman takes out the Crooks and the Verania pulls into port for the hoods to be arrested. Superman and Batman pretend to leave the ship, but when Clark makes a remarkable recovery, Lois immediately suspects them have been Batman and Superman because, you know, you would. That night, Superman whizzes Batman back to Gotham and this throws Lois off the scent. Batman repays the favour by having Bruce disguise himself as Clark when they get off the ship so Superman can be seen greeting them. Finally, the riddle of who Lois prefers is answered when she goes on a date with Robin the Boy Wonder. (laughs) She's a bit of a cougar, one would imagine. Stage 1 Splash Page acting as cover again. This time Lois has a foot trapped in a railway track as Superman stops the train with one hand. Swinging in from stage right is the Batman. What the Batline, which is off page left, is attached to is glossed over. Mm. Perhaps a conveniently passing cloud. Oh. What well, train's really that big? Do you know I don't know? It is quite a huge. You know I've not notice that that is a huge train. <laughs> It's like if you assume Superman's about six foot, six foot four, yeah. then that train is easily eighteen foot high. The trains are
1: pretty big, but
0: They're not eighteen yeah.
1: foot high. <laughs> oh
0: dear. Um, page two, because we're reading this in uh, Superman from the thirties to the seventies, the black and white art is fantastic. Panel one of Batman and Robin smacking out the hoodlum has lots of great shading. I did like that Gordon lets Batman and Robin take the hood in and book him. Because mm. Gordon's obviously far too busy to do his job. Oh, yeah. but we've That j- job he never does. That <laughs> job that he doesn't do. There's an episode of the 60s Batman TV show. Did you watch that one with me? I think you probably, yeah. Batman and Robin aren't available. Yeah. And Commissioner Gordon says, you know what, this means Chief Ahara, And Chief Ahara Hara says, Bigora, what does it mean? We're going to have to do our jobs. And both of them are like, oh, no. It was very funny. Yeah. Page two again. If Dick has relatives, why is he living with Bruce? Because they glossed over that. Did crisis? Because surely, if his parents died, he would have gone to his relatives, wouldn't he? Not yeah. to a stranger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially not a stranger who's a billionaire playboy.
1: Yeah, okay, yeah. Go on. There is that. What? Um, they've actually glossed over that post-crisis, haven't they? Post-crisis, he didn't have any relatives. Right. Dick Grayson didn't Maybe have any relatives. Maybe because that reason.
0: And the the church, the church, the circus wanted to take him in, mm. but the state wouldn't allow it. Right. Their argument being Bruce could give him a much more stable home. Yeah. So he didn't have any He doesn't have any relatives post crisis. I presume that it's the same New Fifty Two, but mm. they've not really gone into Dick Grayson's origin in the New Fifty Two, have they? Kind of. Ish. ish. Yeah. A bit. Mm.
1: But he doesn't have any known relatives now. So I presume it's the same thing. See, one other thing that got me here, which yes. I thought was quite so, was Bruce yeah. decided to forget about crime, just let it go, and decide to go on a holiday. Yeah, maybe The Dark Knight Rises wasn't as contrived as we thought it was. I mean, okay, I'm fine with Commissioner God letting <coughs> him go... Do and, his job! Ha- ...have a night off, yeah, but... And then for, for him to just decide to go on holiday and forget about crime...
0: Yeah, that they would seem a bit out of character for Batman for this one, but Batman just seems incredibly laid back in this story yeah. all the way through, doesn't he? When Superman says, pretend to make a play for Lois Batman's all like, what? I'm here for Ever. a here, you know, I'm here for, for relaxing, I'm going to lie on the on the top deck, I'm going to swim a bit what? this sounds like work,
1: dude I'm going to swim in my back trunks <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yes, yeah, with his, his, his back peeping out of his trunk. I like that the 50s have set the pattern of the two heroes. Batman is punching out crooks. Superman's doing educational stuff. Clark and Lois seem to be getting known quite well here, Mm. in contrast to other stories of the era. And Clark has obviously taken Lois dancing somewhere, which is quite swanky by the looks of things, because she's dressed up in a strapless, backless, classless little black dress. It may not have been black in the original comic, but I'm assuming it's black when, you know, it's black and white. Yeah. I doubt it was white. Hmm. Uh, page three. I can believe that a nomad like Clark would get bumped, but Bruce is a millionaire and prominent citizen. Why on earth isn't he in first class? Because then there'd be no plot. First Yeah. All right. <laughs> um... Rather hilariously, the first thing both of them think is, what if he discovers I'm Superman? Mm, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> what Clark's worry is slightly understandable, although why he thinks just because they're roomies they're going to be in each other's pockets is over Bruce is supposed to be on holiday. Mm. Why would he even think he was going to be
1: Batman whilst on the cruise liner? He just brings it anyway. <laughs> he just has the costume with him for the crack. You see what it is? It's they're actually his pyjamas. He <laughs> takes his car off and them. Like you
0: used to have Batman yeah. pyjamas with a cape. Yeah. The cape used to attach to your shoulders. It was like that, yeah.
1: <laughs> Bruce wears <Willis> Batman pyjamas. <laughs> oh,
0: I wonder hysterical. if he actually
1: goes into like a clothes shop and buys Batman t-shirts.
0: Well, in a story that we will cover... Yeah. Later, we'll see, we'll see him shopping in his Batman
1: outfit. <laughs> it, it was around here that made, it made me realise that I've read this story in another format. Format, yeah. Right. With With um, the Batman Superman annual. And more on that in a moment. Mm.
0: Page four. Nevertheless, Bruce is prepared and has brought the bat suit. It's rather naive to assume Clark wouldn't hear him change in the dark. And how would he plan on getting out the door? Yeah. Superman also seems to forget
1: that he has super speed. Yeah. He he gets dressed undressed slowly, though, in that panel, which yeah. is really good. The scene's quite charming in its own way. Mm. Maybe he was
0: doing it slowly so he didn't make a noise.
1: Well, he wouldn't make a noise if he did it super fast.
0: That's true. I mean... Whew. But as you just pointed out, without it, we have no plot.
1: Mm. As ways that they discover each other's secret identity, this is a bit weak. I do like how innocent it is. You're Batman, you're Superman. Let's keep each other's secrets. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was a more innocent time. Um, Also on
0: page four, they leap off the cruise liner in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that kind of give it away that they are already on board... Yeah. ...in the civilian guises. Yeah. That was a bit stupid of them. Mm. I thought. I mean, I know this was written for younger readers. Yeah. Who probably wouldn't think of stuff like that. So I'll, I'll let that slide. But it is a bit... But it is... It does make them out to be a little bit dense, I think. Um On page five... Batman swings in... and rescues Lois from the fire. And Lois says, I knew you'd save me, Superman... You're not Superman. What was your first clue, Lois? <laughs> At page six, Superman says that if Superman and Batman appear on the ship as well, and Clark as well as Clark and Bruce, their IDs may be jeopardised. I'd say they blew that when they leapt off the ship as Superman and Batman back on page four. Batman then says they need to be on the ship in both IDs to avoid that situation. Again, this is rather stupid as surely it draws attention to them more... ...if they're on board as Batman and Superman... ...when they could operate surreptitiously as Clark and Bruce.
1: Mm.
0: But, again kids of this era would probably not buy a comic that didn't have Batman and Superman in it
1: but then we we covered an issue last week where Superman was in one panel and it was him in disguise yeah things have moved on since then oh
0: okay. quite considerably they they wouldn't pull a Bendis in this era an entire issue without Superman they may do a six page backup strip that didn't have Superman in it Mm -hmm. but they're unlikely to do a story like this whereas Bruce could have just enjoyed his vacation he doesn't have to be Batman for the rest of this story, he could have easily just said, "Well, all right, I'm here on holiday, Superman. You handle this. Hmm. If you want me, I'll be up by the pool with that, that cute little blonde, um, that blonde
1: waitress. She was giving me the eye earlier on. I'll be up there with her. I- I'll I'll be up there with that uh, with that reporter. No, not Lois. <laughs> 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 yeah, because
0: in the they did the world's finest animated episodes of this. They did actually have Bruce and Lois hook up, didn't they? Yeah, which was quite cool. It was quite a cool twist, I thought." Lois makes her way onto the ship also on page 6 how on earth did Lois get a suitcase get permission from Perry and get a cabin in the amount of time it took to cast off
1: women take forever to pack not Lois Lane. She, she has her emergency reporting kit prepared. <laughs> just for such an occasion? Yeah. Do you know I can she, actually buy that? She went out shopping for clothes, which you would always keep in a suitcase I, just to go on these I adventures. totally buy that. That's
0: plausible. Mm-hmm. That's a good no prize, that. I'm having that. Page seven. Bruce, saying he will look after Clark, is a little bit suspect. <laughs> Do they not have an onboard doctor? Uh... They always used to have an onboard doctor on the love boat. (laughs) Um, And I think this story would have worked a lot better if they hadn't put Superman and Batman on the ship. Granted, they didn't know Lois was on the ship when they did that, but Bruce could have kept Lois busy, getting jiggy with it, whilst Clark did an investigative journalist bit. In fact, as we just mentioned, this is the tap they took in the animated version of this story, where Superman and Batman met for the first time. And Superman didn't like the fact that that Bruce was macking on Lois Lane. Mm. Dana Delaney, though you would, wouldn't you? Um, it seems a bit of overkill to have Superman stop the ship from listing by having him carry it. Especially seen as wouldn't the boat crumble under its own weight if he did that with it?
1: Scientifically. Well, yeah, but scientifically, you couldn't freeze a lake and carry it over to the next. Scientifically,
0: sector. Superman could totally do that. <coughs> I'm just saying that he. He couldn't carry the boat like that. It would it would break in half, especially at the front. Given that he's at the front of it, he's yeah, be dragging. Yeah, could it would it not have been better if he'd left it in the water and towed it? Mm. I think that may have been a bit more um, a bit more plausible. Page eight is an exceptional use of teamwork. Superman uses his powers, and Batman uses his brains to locate the thief, and it's done in such a way that neither character is played as dumb.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So kudos to that. I like that an awful lot. On page nine. Batman does a, a few tricks for the crowd that night like a little
1: show <laughs> yeah. little
0: show and tell
1: for all yeah, these we, people we, we've got a crook to catch but you know what I'll just do a show
0: oh and he's so glamorous <laughs> and it's like it's a quantum leap between this and urban legend Batman isn't it yeah Batman who on a cruise liner in the middle of nowhere, he's quite happy to perform acrobatic feats for the crowd. Pass it
1: off as a cruise worker dressing up as Batman. Dressed up as Batman. Yeah. That totally works. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Superman bit
0: next doesn't. No. That, that that doesn't work at all. You could attach strings to him just so. I, I actually quite like this bit because it shows that Superman has an ego
1: yeah. Because they don't
0: ask Superman to do anything. And Lois is all bitchy, isn't she? Mm. Oh, um, you can do some tricks if you like Superman, but no one really cares what you can do. But Batman, oh, he's a dreamboat. Now, I know that she's playing a role at this point because yeah. she knows that Superman and Batman have plotted against her. But it still shows ego on Superman's part to go, um, uh, look, I can juggle icebergs. He <laughs> can only do acrobatic tricks. I think I'm cooler. I can tug planets, so... <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's only showing off to impress Lois. Mm. So I, re- I quite liked that. I like giving Superman human emotions like jealousy is an excellent way of giving the reader some identification with the character and gives lie to the utter bollocks that non-Superman fans whine about when they say Superman's boring. I can totally buy into that, that he's got a bit of an ego on him. But he even actually says, I guess the best man won Batman. Lois fancies you. And Batman's all like, I don't care. (laughs) It is easy to see why why people of this era thought Batman may may be batting for the other team. Yeah. yeah. Lois is like all over him and he's, go away, woman.
1: I want to go swimming.
0: (laughs) I want to go swimming. Page 10, it's actually quite smart that Smilter targets Lois. In fact, Smilter's entire scheme in this story is quite good. And he would have gotten away with it if not for some pesky superheroes. Yeah. And bad luck. He planned the fire to be near the cruise liner so he nipped aboard with the passengers he had the diamonds hidden in a lead gun granted it was more good fortune than clever planning but maybe he thought Superman would show up because he was doing this in Metropolis having a helicopter pick him up in the middle of the ocean seems a little bit ostentatious but it's clever yeah. it's a good idea as, as supervillain plots in a 1950s comic book go this one was quite good mm-hmm. and actually held water which was quite impressive. Uh, Page 11. Why does Lois instantly leap to the idea that Bruce Wayne's Batman? Why would she even think that? She's never met Bruce Wayne. Yeah. She's met him now one panel of this entire story. she
1: talks about him like she knows him personally. Yeah. You're never there when Batman's there. Yeah, and
0: Bruce would be like, how the hell do you know, woman? You've only just met me. Journalism. (laughs) Uh, Page 12. Did Superman just randomly spend time greeting people on cruise liners?
1: Why not? Hey, I'm Superman, stronger than Batman. Batman doesn't do this.
0: (laughs) Batman totally doesn't greet group people who visit Gotham. (laughs) I can't help but think there may be better uses of his time, to be honest with you. Um, After seeing Clark and Superman together, why would she ever think Clark and Superman were one and the same ever again? Mm. that's what always bugs me about stuff like this it's like there's an episode of Lois and Clark I watched as well where he doesn't have his powers and he gets a paper cut so if Lois has seen Clark have a paper cut why would she then ever think that he's Superman it doesn't make sense Mm. to me because once again then you wouldn't have a story well then then. yeah you wouldn't have a story so okay (laughs) because the evidence of her own eyes isn't enough apparently (laughs) Uh, the ending to this was cute and funny given the more innocent time it was written But now it just makes Lois seem like a bit of a cougar. uh, And an inappropriate one at that. I do hope she was gentle with Robin that night when she made him a man. (laughs) I'm sorry I went there. A more innocent time. A more innocent time. An utterly charming, lightweight and fun tale that rattles along nicely. Whilst there is a lot of Silver Age silliness although technically the Silver Age hasn't begun yet, the whole thing is so wonderfully fun and funny the reader can't help but carried along by sheer charm alone. Yes, it's slightly silly when viewed with adult eyes, but it wasn't written for adults. And if you keep that in mind when reading it, a good time can be had. Uh, Batman and Superman are a lot less confrontational in this first meeting than their counterparts would be at Marvel, where I'm sure they would have gotten into a misunderstanding and then had a fight.
1: Hmm. which you, is the way things go which is the way things go Yeah, us
0: face you? it it is pretty good when they do that get into a fight yeah it's kind of
1: one-sided Superman versus Batman though isn't it yeah better bettering and utility ah! Well, it's, enjoy it's, it on the moon it's always a one-sided fight depending on what the writer is Uh yes let's take a, a let's take um, a, a a writer who can write Superman well and then it's one-sided fight in favour of Superman But then it's a, a writer who can write Batman well Jeff Loeb then it's one sided fight on Batman's side.
0: Yeah, so it always depends on who's writing it. The
1: infamous moment in Hush and Dark Knight Returns, which yeah. he was just riffing on. So
0: mm-hmm. it's all Frank Miller's fault. Yeah, but I think we can blame Frank Miller for everything, can't we? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. What did you think of that? I'm very interested in what you thought of that. Because the Golden Age stuff, I had kind of an inkling that you'd go, "Yeah, this is alright. I can see why this is good." The Silver Age stuff, I'm thinking you're just gonna think
1: daft. Yeah, the Golden Age I think was much better compared to this because it was very silly. I mean. It, Like with the other one, it was a good idea, but because of the time, it was delivered quite sillily. It wasn't delivered with a straight face. No. Perhaps.
0: And I do agree entirely that the writing in the Golden Age stuff is of a higher quality. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. It also
1: has the the darkness of it, where it isn't too dark, but it's not the comedic tone, the silver age. Yeah,
0: there's a lot more grit to the Golden Age stuff that we covered. That's fair enough. Um... As Michael mentioned when we were actually covering the story, they instantly become well, if not friends, allies, covering for each other and helping each other out. Like you said, ah, you're Batman, and ah, you're Superman. Uh, should we keep each other a secret? Uh, why not? Beat swimming. <laughs> that's, that's it, yeah. Yeah. I came here for a holiday. Batman treats it like any other case, but Superman's jealousy over Lois's apparent fancying of the light knight actually makes him more relatable as a character in this tale than Batman, who, it seems, couldn't care less. Whilst the super feats are few and far between in this one, they are fun when they happen. And, unusually, the soap opera aspects of the story are, are given as much equal time as the main plot, again, prefiguring the Marvel Age of comics. Superman and Batman would remain pals throughout the Silver and Bronze Age before Frank Miller would piss in everybody's coffee in 1986, making them adversaries in The Dark Knight Returns. Since then, every other wannabe Frank Miller hasn't been able to let it go. This story would be remade in typical piss-take post-modern cynical fashion in Superman-Batman Annual 1. Whilst I personally like them being friendly rather than best mates and much prefer team-ups to be occasional rather than every month, I wish people would just stop with the Miller stuff. Just stop.
1: Well, speaking, speaking of... ...of the Superman-Batman Annual Issue 1 of Annual 1 which was written by Joe Kelly with pencils by Ed McGuinness, Ryan Otley, Sean Murphy and Carlo Barberi.
0: And can I can of just say as well, it was really weird reading this and having suddenly the
1: Invincible artists show up. Yeah. Everyone suddenly starts looking like Invincible. Yeah. And I was like, what? It was pretty much the same story except Deathstroke was hired to kill Bruce Wayne and a dimensional rift caused the crime syndicate and Deadpool of Earth One to show up. In all honesty, I prefer the annual because um, as with most Gold and Silver Bronze Age comics, there's it's the type of story I don't like was sort all of rushed and there's barely any I, I disagree with that Bronze Age statement, but we'll get to that when we get to those stories. Okay. But there's barely any characterization due to the amount of action and any characterization there is, is just shoehorned in. Take Superman issue one, where it's Oh Lois, will you gonna date me? Oh yeah, for once. Which was very shoehorned in. And I think that with most early stuff there's barely any characterisation just because it's all jumping and
0: action. Yeah, they they skimp an awful lot on the characterisation in the Silver and Bronze Age, which is to be fair, but certainly the level of imagination on display. Yeah. Um, The Superman annual, Superman Batman annual number one came out in December of 2006. As I mentioned, it is piss takery. I laughed out loud. It is post modern, and it is quite cynical. Mm. But some of it is exceptionally funny. It's
1: the... The, the Superman-Batman rivalry is played out to the nth degree here. Yeah. My problem Some of the dialogue is exceptionally funny. I yeah. will give him that. I like the um, bit where it's very subtly handled at the beginning, where Bruce is doing his monologue, where he's out I was fighting these crooks and Superman. Yeah, and then we get Superman's point of view. Yeah. Which is very
0: good. And the title is a nice little nod stop me if you've heard this one before Mm. which is quite funny and all the bits with let's just call him Deadpool yeah because that's who he is were great my problem with it were one Bruce Wayne's characterisation in the first half of this book is god awful despite there being some exceptionally funny one liners I like it Bruce isn't Tony Stark Bruce doesn't pretend to be obnoxious he's a wealthy millionaire playboy But he's vacuous. He's a non-entity. He's not witty. He doesn't command the attention of the room. Even though he's there, he just kind of blends in, which is what he wants. All the girls fawn all over him because he's good-looking and rich, and he plays up on that. Mm. But in this, he's snarky. And actually quite cruel to Clark in front of Lois. Which I thought was a bit out of character for Bruce. Uh, But my least favourite part of this... Even though Superman saves Bruce's life with a shot of heat vision because Deathstroke poisons his drink, which was
1: hysterical.
0: Yeah. There's a bit where Deadpool gets shot to death in front of Bruce and Clark, and
1: Bruce doesn't do anything about it. Clark doesn't do anything.
0: Clark, about it. Not only does Clark not do anything about it, because at this point they don't know that Deadpool is um, bulletproof or can't die or whatever his deal with Deadpool. Yeah. He makes a joke about it. Yeah. Your know, vacation's always like this. Pretty much. I don't see Clark making the joke when somebody has just been gunned down in front of him. Yeah. That being said, some of it is exceptionally funny, particularly in the first half. The interdimensional rift that has brought Ultraman, Owlman and Superwoman also explains why Deadpool's here. Yeah. Because they've grabbed him from another universe. I thought it lost its way a bit towards the end. Where I think it just got rather silly for the sake of it. The two-page splash, where the caption boxes is just overwrought, tedious. Yeah, really. But it plays as a comedy, and it works as a comedy. But in some cases, it works at the expense of the character. The character, the humour should come from the character, not at the expense of the character. Mm. And I think they sent up Bruce Wayne's persona too much here in that they, they confused him with Tony Stark's persona yeah. which Bruce isn't Bruce is essentially Tony Stark and he's a millionaire playboy who runs big corporations but Bruce isn't witty or urban. he doesn't command a room he's not got snarky answers for everything he's just kind of a bit vague mm. people don't kind of remember him
1: we well, say I saw over that just because reading it now it was quite nice to see a Bruce Wayne who wasn't Batman just without the costume.
0: Yeah, he did. The Bruce Wayne does get a lot of play in this story, mm. and that's nice to see. But certainly Scott Snyder is doing an awful lot of that. Uh, the last page actually has the comic we just covered. Yeah, and it gets eaten by the bizarro editor, who is Julia Schwartz. Is it? Yeah, that's trying to be like like Julia Schwartz because Mister click arranged the whole thing. So that was a little diversion. We hadn't planned on covering that, but it was halfway through. Michael went, Wait a minute! And so we both reread it, and we thought we would cover it. But back to the Silver Age for the next story, which is in my really knackered Greatest Superman Stories Ever Told. I need a new copy of this, don't I? Yeah. This is really beaten up. When I, was want the the hardback, ah. I want The Hardback, 1986. I want The Hardback. I've read this till it fell to bits. Um, I want the hardback, but it's really hard to get hold of in this country.
1: As with most cool things,
0: yeah. But um, yeah, this one's this one's fallen a bit. Um, the super key to Fort Superman is generally regarded as the beginning of the DC Silver Age as far as Superman is concerned. A little late to the party, the Silver Age generally is acknowledged as officially beginning with Showcase Number 4 and the debut of Barry Allen as The Flash in 1956. But with this issue, Mort Weisinger takes over as editor, and more mythology-laden stories would follow. Action Comics issue 241 was released on April 29th, 1958, cover dated June. The cover by Kurt Swan and Stan Kay has Superman inserting his giant key into his fortress of solitude. It would take over 100 men to lift this key, he says on the cover, but somebody's managed it. Who? It was written by Jerry Coleman, with art by Wayne Boring and Stan Kaye. Cluck! Jimmy and Lois are out for lunch and both Jimmy and Lois are mooning over a necklace and a sports car respectively. Unbeknownst, I know what you're laughing at, unbeknownst to them the man of tomorrow plans to bestow those very gif- gifts upon them. Wish I had a pal like Superman. I want that 1970s Dodge Charger. You do know that, don't you? I know that. Yeah. See, if I was Superman... You would totally buy me, a, a build me a 1970 yeah. Dodge Charger. That got better gas mileage. <laughs> Than the real wonders. Oh, yeah. That'd be awesome. Um, after work, Superman starts scouring the ocean deep for pearls, and then speeds to the Arctic. Were by using the super-sized key positioned to look like a marker for passing aircraft, he accesses his fortress of solitude. Turns out, this is where Superman comes to rest, keep trophies, and generally kick back and relax. The next day, Superman is asked to test a new metal by a mysterious scientist that he has developed that he suspects even Superman can't destroy. Superman takes it to the fortress but casually tosses it aside when a message inside the door reveals that Mr X can get in and out of the mysterious structure as and when he pleases and Superman is powerless to stop him. Superman strolls the fortress looking for clues but is stumped. He puts his fist through the scientist's metal with no problem and takes his leave, but not before blocking the entrance so no one can enter. He returns the next day to find the unknown man has left a message for him inside a block of lead, as well as finishing Superman's painting of a man drowning. After a sleepless night, Superman starts to cock things up, jeopardising the life of passengers on a cruise liner he's just saved. He returns to the fortress to find a sign on the Clark Kent dummy and spots a blob of wax near the Batman dummy. In the shadows, Mr. X vows to reveal himself tonight. But not like a flasher or anything. Because, you know, we don't approve that. However, in an earthquake... um, However, an earthquake traps Superman in a small room next to the kryptonite he was examining earlier. Batman reveals himself... Again, not like that. And that it was he all along creating some elaborate plan that involved defiling the key and destroying one of Superman's wax dolls. It
1: was just an elaborate <laughs> It was all an
0: elaborate ruse. Turns out it is the anniversary of Superman arriving on Earth and this rather cruel gag that lost Superman's sleep, made him careless and has now got them both killed, was a present. <laughs> Thanks, Batman! Superman laughs heartily as he has pulled a cruel gag of his own. The kryptonite is fake. The two friends laugh and laugh. And at the Batcave, they eat a massive cake that Batman made himself with all that spurt time he apparently has. <laughs> God, I love this. I adore this story. The splash page has Superman using his heat vision to make an oversized diary in the dead language of his home planet, Krypton. The language of Krypton was created by E. Nelson Bridwell, consisting of 118 letters and arbitrarily assigned values to them. He even looked over old Superman comics and used the same variations from when they had been used in the past. I have to say, it seems strange to me that Superman would take this course of action, as if something did happen to him, nobody else would be able to read it and discover his fate. Oddly, in the story, he uses his fingernails, not his heat vision.
1: Hmm. So that was an odd discrepancy. Well, in this, um, Morrison wrote um, into an issue of All Star Superman. He did, yeah. He wrote the side Although Although um, in that issue, rather than explain that he was going to speak in Kryptonian in English, he completely wrote in Kryptonian. Was it the in same this... Kryptonian? Yeah, probably. Right. But in this, he, he says, "And I will write in Kryptonian," and then this Kryptonian text. Right. Which I thought was a bit silly, because who's he writing about for? It's the Silver Age, you
0: know. Um, Page two. Lois wants a pearl necklace. I say that with no other comment. I'm just going to let that go.
1: Once again, we have a second issue with the protagonist, the hero... Spends the day slacking off crime. <laughs> yeah. He spends all day swimming and looking for pearls. hey
0: Even Superman needs some
1: downtime. Yeah, and Lex Luthor doesn't. that's that Luthor may be in jail at this point. All those know. criminals are uh, blowing up Metropolis, and he's swimming for some pearls.
0: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, page two the depiction of the key to the fortress would vacillate between the more ornate and bulkier key seen in this issue and the rather normal looking key on the cover a few times before settling on the key featured in the story Action Comics 247 and 249 would feature the skinnier key but by 250 consistency was maintained which pleased anal retentive fanboys such as ourselves my favourite's the normal key but it's ridiculously heavy the one that Ignorstar Superman that he made out of the explosion of a dead star or something.
1: So it doesn't matter about that. It's the
0: core of a dead star or something. I just like it? how
1: it's a normal key and he's like come yeah. on oh, lift it Lois. Yeah <laughs> but it's only
0: Superman can lift it up. Yeah, That, is, that was quite cool.
1: Because it's just, he's just leaving her on a massive key. Anyone can find that and go oh Superman lives here.
0: Well in the Silver Age it was explained as being a marker for aeroplanes over the Arctic. Yeah. So if they saw that marker they knew they were on the right flight path. Alright. As time went on and sophisticated flight technology developed they didn't really need it. But- mm that was the explanation for it anyway it's quite a decent origin actually given that he hangs the, the key on the inside when he's in the fortress yeah one would imagine that any planes that are lost are, are just out of luck really aren't they <laughs> there should be a marker here where's it he gone sorry meanwhile while, while you're while you're busy swimming looking for pearls there's loads of aircraft <laughs> crashed in the arctic <laughs> Oh, dear me. For many, this seems to represent the first appearance of the Fortress of Solitude. And interestingly, there is no reference to it being new in the story. It's just the, as if it always has been. The Krypton Companion states that the Fortress was first dubbed as such in Superman issue 58 from 1949. But Superman had a secret citadel as early as Superman issue 17, Muscles for Sale in 1942. Look, I did research. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I do like that in The Fortress of Solitude Superman has all his equipment labeled like Batman does I yeah. think he went in the Batcave and saw that and went I want some of that <laughs> I want me a piece of that because he's even got trophies like a big Joker penny
1: yeah, like Batman has doesn't is it a giant penny or a giant T-Rex S- Batman has a giant penny and a T-Rex does Superman have a T-Rex or a giant penny no
0: Superman's only got a
1: little penny though No with Joker on it I can't remember what it was, but I read something where, oh yeah, it was, um, Widening Gaia. Yeah. Where Batman takes Silver St. Cloud to the Fortress, Fortress Solitude, and there's a giant T-Rex. i sure he takes him to the back, Kev. No. She takes her to the fortress. He goes to the fortress of Solitude? Yeah. Oh, right. And uh, And
0: Superman has no objection to this.
1: No, well, no. But, um,
0: (laughs) It wasn't me who let Vicky Vale into the back cave. Come on in, Vic. I'll show you around. She says,
1: Do all you guys get a giant T Rex? And Bob just goes, Mine was first.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Of course it was, Bruce. (laughs) If it helps you to think that. (laughs) Yeah. And Superman then walked in and said, Yeah, but I've actually been. To the Jurassic Age
1: and seeing real dinosaurs he doesn't do anything just walks past and goes yeah but I've actually seen them Bruce and then
0: Batman says yeah but I've been to a planet where I was a caveman and fought dinosaurs so beat that <laughs> and then Superman's all like well yeah but I've been and they just keep
1: Batman can just say yeah but I've been a caveman and a pirate and a detective and, and I've got a zebra <laughs> outfit <laughs> my rainbow outfit
0: <laughs> and then Superman goes yeah right, you win that one is there anything you want to tell us friend of Dorothy I never had a mullet Superman <laughs> Superman didn't have a mullet yes. no he didn't it was
1: long hair it was not a mullet it was, it mullet. was not. have you got a mullet well no because you go it's, long, it's just as long as the front as it is in the back Superman's was just as long Superman was shot in the front no it wasn't
0: because he could put it in a ponytail <laughs> it was a mullet it was not a mullet it was a, it mullet. Was not a mullet he was rocking the it it was not a mullet <laughs> <laughs> it, you did not have a mullet Page three, <laughs> moving swiftly on, Superman keeps wax models of all his friends and is making Lois a necklace and Jimmy a car in case he dies. Surely the point of a gift is to give it whilst the giver is still
1: alive. And how is he going to give it to them if he's dead?
0: Exactly. Especially no one would know about the fortress. Yeah. So and how they would able to they know? Because the key's on the inside. Exactly. So how would they know to get, the, to get the gift in the first place? And then when they got there, how would they get in? <laughs> yeah. And how, how would they get a
1: said car out of the Arctic? Yeah,
0: well, how Jimmy would drive his car home from the Arctic is a question so profound, the writers of Superman 2 wouldn't be able to come up with an answer <laughs> 22 years hence. Because where did that car come from that Lois and Clark drive home from the Fortress of Solitude? Mm. you ever wondered that? <laughs> Wait a minute, he flew there! <laughs> You mean he is when Jurel made the fortress? He just put a car in there, didn't he? Grand just in case, Superman. Yeah, well, he thought of everything else. So, yeah. like, just in case you ever want to get rid of your powers, I'm going to give you a car. Oh, thanks, Dad. He didn't give him a cool car though, did he? No. He didn't give him a Mustang or something like that. Give him a station wagon. <laughs> <laughs> you see, Clark?
1: What do you give me this for? What do I look like forty? You need to fit in and not use your powers. And oh, just give me a station wagon. God, you could have at least given me a
0: stingray. (laughs) Miserable. Not that kind of stingray. Um, Page four. Other than that, (laughs) Superman thinks of everything. Yes. Well, kind of. Even the event of his death, he wouldn't want anyone to suspect his ID. One would think it wouldn't matter anymore, but no. (laughs) Superman even has a Clark Kent room to deflect suspicion, along with a Batman robot detective to help Batman with his cases.
1: uh, (laughs) Who's... Okay, but how is he going to answer what happens to Clark Kent when he dies? He's not a fallout
0: through, is he? <laughs> I don't think. Um, surely Batman would appreciate the help, but we've already covered all of this. Interestingly, Batman is now Superman's best pal. Oh, right. And okay. someone that he can trust with all my secrets. And look where that got you.
1: <laughs> Does he write it in his diary? <laughs> Superman. When he's lying on his bed with his legs up in the air. <laughs> a picture of them both. A signed poster. Yeah. It's <laughs> his bed. BFFs.
0: <laughs> oh, dear God. Um, Superman is painting a picture of a genuine Martian landscape he witnessed with his telescopic vision given that the painting seems to depict a man drowning yeah. one would hope that he didn't let the guy die just so he got a decent painting
1: <laughs> is he not also painting like the ruins of the Martian landscape after the fire burned it down <laughs> what, which the Martian manhunter. how could it be the Martian man dead wife that <laughs> if he ever invites John
0: Johns back to the fortress and Johns See that poster and goes, What? What the? There's <laughs> <laughs> a meltdown. Yeah. And Superman's like, But I thought it made a cool picture. That's
1: was- my brother! I thought it was a flower. <laughs> <laughs>
0: page 5 within the fortress Superman has machines confiscated off Luther remnants of dead planets and animals from all over the galaxy when he sits down next to a giant joker trophy the reader is given the second clue as to the mysterious identity of Mr. X
1: Um, page 6 Superman says he writes in his diary with his fingernails but on page one he, he doesn't really see it for them.
0: yeah I pointed that out I, I thought that was a bit of an odd discrepancy yeah because presumably the same guy unless he drew the splash page having not read the rest of the script yeah. <laughs> and when he got there he went
1: oops Superman writing diary
0: yeah oh ok and then Kurt Swan's like I can't be bothered changing it <laughs> I can't be asked. I've been paid for it I'm not, I'm not doing it again I won't get paid if I redraw it it seems fair enough I suppose Um, Page seven, one of the things I do like about this is there's something new on every page. Every time Superman goes to the fortress, we see a new room or a new creature. Whilst this makes little sense and can easily be pulled apart by modern, more adult readers, this is to miss the point of the sheer imagination and scope of this story to a child reader. Page nine, we learn that, yes, it's Batman who has staged this elaborate and actually quite cruel ruse. Superman gets his own back by making Batman think they're trapped in a cave and is going to die a slow and painful death <laughs> with friends like these.
1: <laughs> Deadly um, BFFs. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Perhaps they're like the Pink Panther and Kato. <laughs> constantly trying to kill each other under the pretense of being mates. Spy versus spy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, page 10 Batman states that he revealed his secret to Superman and admitted him to the Batcave when Superman then told him that he was Clark Kent and told him about the fortress that's not how I recall it happening in the last story we covered but okay whatever Uh, I love how Superman twists the knife here I never suspected it was you as I trust you completely he states (laughs) dig that knife in Superman dig it and twist that'll teach the upper class knob to play tricks on you (laughs) I do have to ask how the hell did Batman get to the Arctic did Robin drop him off does Superman not have something to say about Batman cutting a hole in the key for him to hide it? does Superman not mind his friend just casually destroying his property like when Batman melts his wax dummy does Superman not now feel justified in making Batman feel like his stupid prank is going to kill them both Batman even wrote that professor guy into it as the metal was all part of the ruse. This was an extremely elaborate wow. gag, it was. wasn't it? I mean, for play to Batman, he covered all his angles, <laughs> didn't he? This wasn't just a spur-of-the-moment practical joke. He sat down and thought World this through. this prankster. Yeah, <laughs> he's unpunked.
1: In reality... <laughs> In DC Universe, instead of Ashton Kutcher Batman! Batman. <laughs> and people
0: say he doesn't have a sense of humour. <laughs>
1: we're now gonna use a hidden camera to see Wonder Woman on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my> god. <laughs> all god. the Justice League hates him.
0: Because <laughs> yeah. he's punked every single one of them.
1: And it's <laughs> that's Master funny, Man- all those files that he has, that's <laughs> yeah. what they're for. Martian Manhunter's uh, series, Batman, Bruce, uh, Batman's thing where that is, uh, he, he makes it like his family comes back and then at You've been Batman <laughs> <laughs> Then the Martian man hunter stands on him. <laughs> oh, That's two of you t- I hate t- now. <laughs> <laughs> Batman host him poked. <laughs> <laughs> i watched that show. Um, how did Batman eat in the two to three hours days that he was in the fortress? He's got stuff in his utility belt. <laughs> Even bottles he peed in. Oh, no. (laughs) Where else is he going to go in the Fortress of Solitude? uh, Superman not
0: have a bathroom in the Fortress of Solitude, does he not? I don't know. He does in Superman 2, Miss Teshmaker
1: finds it. All right. Well, it's been in the Arctic and all, so if he just lets it go, it's like a stick and you just put it to the side. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, On page
0: 12, Batman melted the wax museum and took its place. To be fair, the art makes this clear, as Superman's wax doll is a bit lax in the attention to detail department. For one thing, Batman has no gloves, and for another, there's no neck on the cowl. Later in the issue, when Batman has taken the place of the wax dummy, these things are present and correct, which was a nice little clue, mm. I thought. However, why did Superman need the blob of wax to give it away? Could he not hear Batman's heartbeat?
1: no because he does that thing where he slows down his happy really really slow <laughs> of course he does yeah. how
0: stupid of me um, I absolutely adored that Batman went shopping in his costume to get a present for Superman and the other shoppers are just standing and looking at him and he's like I, I shouldn't wish to attract attention as he goes about his business does he pay with a back credit card <laughs> Because that would Ew. just make me want to punch
1: you. pay paid in cash. Because if he does pay it on credit card, whose card is
0: it? It's got Batman's name, man. Have you not seen Batman and Robin? <laughs> no. Batman has a credit card. <laughs> God, did that made me laugh an insane amount when I was reading this. Whereas as a kid, I just accepted that as perfectly acceptable yeah. behaviour. <laughs> so totally, Batman goes shopping in his costume. Um, the next question: How on earth? did Batman make such a huge cake and get it into the Batcave? Well, that and...
1: Who made those candles? I was just going to say, and he made
0: giant candles as well. like Kent and Superman candles. candles. <laughs> like I said, he put a lot of effort into this. <laughs>
1: this was a birthday present.
0: Yeah, he, just, he didn't just toss this off, he <laughs> planned this to the last detail. Um, Where did he get the giant knife? <laughs> would Superman just carry that with him or did Batman make that as well doesn't Batman have better things to do
1: no one has anything better to do His past two issues (laughs) he's just got on holiday and messed about I mean isn't there a crime that needs stopping doesn't he have Robin to look
0: after has he not got any like school parents evenings to go to I I don't think Bruce did any of this I reckon Alfred did it all yeah Alfred planned this whole thing but um, Again, this is rather silly mm. when viewed through the eyes of an adult but I found, I found this utterly charming as a child. I first read this in Superman Annual 1979 along with the story of Superman's life and the untold story of Red Kryptonite, the menace of the terrible Toy Man and the Kryptonite Man and this gave a new child reader everything they could need to know about Superman and his world whilst it flatly contradicts the last story. In every other respect, it remains a fine example of the Silver Age, where continuity wasn't deemed as important as consistency, and playing a prank on your best mate was the highlight of your day. In many ways, this is essentially the kind of story Garth Ennis would write in Hellblazer.
1: Yeah. Just
0: mates hanging out
1: and playing pranks on each other. The only thing is, in Hellblazer, it wasn't superheroes. (laughs) No, no. no. Well, arguably, (laughs) it wasn't in this. Finally
0: tonight, an all-time classic with a very ugly Frank Miller cover
1: mm. it has to she be said she's not bald she's wearing a wig
0: she probably is The Supergirl from Krypton debuted in Action Comics issue 252 from March 31st, 1959, covered in May. There had been a trial run of Supergirl in Superman issue 123 in August 1958 in a story entitled The Girl of Steel, but she was a wish dreamt up by Jimmy Olsen. In a subplot that would thankfully not be expanded upon, she'd quite the crush on the Man of Tomorrow. After a really rather excellent house ad proclaiming her to be the heroine DC readers have been requesting for years... The actual cover of the comic asks, Is she friend or foe? It's me, Supergirl, states the blonde-haired blue-eyed Injon. I should have got your sister to read those, but shouldn't. I? As she leaps from a rocket ship, and I have all your powers. Great guns, replies a stunned man of steel. A girl flying! It must be an illusion. For trivia fans, although Supergirl wore a red skirt in the Jimmy Olsen Dream Story and on the house ad that preceded the issue, she wore a blue skirt in this issue and despite the red skirt being the more iconic and better known, she'd wore the blue bodysuit throughout the next decade and into the 1970s. Irrespective of skirt colour, it is an iconic cover. Written by Otto Binder, or Binder, with art by Al Plastino. Spotting a crashing rocket on the outskirts of town, Clark Kent switches to Superman and speeds over to the scene. Arriving seconds too late, the rocket opens to reveal a Supergirl. Clad in a similar costume to Superman, he asks how she can be here, as she's far too young to have left Krypton when he did, and how does she know English and many other questions. Smiling, the Maid of Might explains how it all went down in the hood of
1: Kandor. Whatever. Krypton... I have to say this all in Krypton. Um, no. <laughs>
0: when Krypton exploded, a large section of Hau was flung far away from the planet Hau, with a largely fortuitous bubble of Ur encasing them with an equally fortuitous food machine. It doesn't scan, does it? It's do it it do do yeah. well, yeah. The Kryptonians rejoice at the good fortune. It's a short-lived... Oh, now I'm just going to read it. When Krypton exploded, a large section of it was flung away from the planet and with a hugely fortuitous bubble of Ur encasing them and an equally fortuitous food machine that still functions, the Kryptonians rejoice at their good fortune. It is, however, short-lived. The floor they stand upon has turned into kryptonite, but luckily a scientist named Zoel has had enough lead roll in his lab to cover the entire ground, and the Kryptonians get busy living. To that end, Zorel marries and produces a daughter named Kara who grows to teenagehood. However, a passing meteor shower impacts upon the surface and destroys the lead floor. Rather than get busy dying, zor creates a rocket ship before the poisons can kill them and after monitoring the nearby planets he learns of Earth and Superman. They send Kara on her way in a simulation suit so Superman will recognise her and off she pops. Kara reveals the name of her father, Zorel, el and Superman realises that, that he was his father, Jorel's els brother. No longer alone in the universe, Superman quickly learns that Kara has powers like he does, and christens her Supergirl, the Girl of Steel. After saying that she can't live with him because she'll hamper his swinging bachelor lifestyle, the man of tomorrow, despite attitudes from yesterday, buys her some clothes and a brown wig, and Kara picks the name Linda Lee. Superman takes her to Midvale Orphanage, where Superman says she will stay and learn to live like an Earth girl, but she is to remain a secret. Supergirl agrees, and later that night, she swoops around town wondering what the future will hold. And now, we have a very special guest appearance to talk to us about the girl from Krypton. Hello, Anya.
1: Hello. You've
0: know, got to say hello, Daddy?
1: Hello, Daddy, then.
0: What did you think of that story, Anya?
1: I liked it when the people said what was happening and what they were going to do.
0: What, you mean that the panels tell you what the art shows you? Yeah. It was very popular in the, the <laughs> 50s and 60s, was that.
1: The writers didn't trust the artists too much, did they? But did you like it? Yeah. It was it's good. Have stuck, because, you know, comics still do this technique. They do, yeah. I believe it's called storytelling. <laughs>
0: You don't need the dialogue <laughs> in the panel to tell you what the art is showing you, though, if do you? If the artist you, is really? good. If the artist is good, yes. What else did you like, Anya?
1: I don't like the art because on one page it looks like Supergirl has wrinkles. She doesn't have.
0: She looks... She does. On page four on the bottom panel. Maybe your mum's just stuck her with a pin while she's making her costume. Have you considered that? Maybe she went, oh, and jabbed her. <laughs> Anything else?
1: It was. It looks like Supergirl... Oh no, I've just read that one. Wouldn't the orphanage notice the differences in the rooms, like the bed legs bent back to Norman and well, the mirror? What?
0: Well, Where she just comes in and fixes her room? Yeah. And nobody's- perhaps they just thinks she's very fastidious.
1: And what if she has a fuss on the window on the way in? <laughs> that would
0: apparently just. Apparently, be looks like it's going to bang in me on the last panel of the pit. I think she'd possibly lifts her leg up. I don't, because if she hits her knee, because she's like Supergirl, she'd break the window frame mm. more than, than it'd hurt Supergirl, I suspect.
1: I like this because it is a Supergirl book. I like Supergirl because she is pretty. Well, is thank you, not you very
0: stiff. much. I'll leave her alone. It's the first time she's ever done it. That was a very good book report. Thank, thank you very you. much. Night night. Night
1: night.
0: Page one. Do you like that cover? It's the first cover you've seen this one, isn't it? Mm.
1: Is that alright? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Supergirl's in the pink rocket ship. <laughs> of course it's pink.
0: Of course it's pink, she's Supergirl. Um, page one, as is the norm, The Splash is an alternative cover, but it's pretty much the same as the original cover. Mm. Perhaps this could have been dropped... As an extra six panels of story would have been very useful.
1: It's essentially the same. I mean, two likes like saying great guns a lot. He
0: does, great guns! Is that like Great
1: Scott? <laughs> yeah. Or something like that. He even says that in this song. He does, he says, that, he says Great Scott in this one. Um
0: Because an extra six panels, or four panels even, would have helped. Because the ending to this is very rushed. Hmm. So it would have been nice to have that. Uh, page two, I, I do love the naivete of the 50s. A guided missile can apparently crash land on the outskirts of Metropolis, which seems to be surrounded by mountains and desert, and doesn't even attract the attention of the local police. Unless they're all eh, Superman will handle it.
1: Yeah. That's it now. It's like the Batman's Batman T V show where they're all out uh, Batman will handle it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to do anything. Yeah. Just bring me a donut. Also on this page, I'm intrigued that Supergirl seems to have red loops for her belt to pass through, despite having a blue skirt. Mm. In fact, given their outfit looks like a dress, one has to wonder why she has loops at all. Mm. I didn't understand that. That made no sense to me. But what do I know about fashion? (laughs) I I have no clue about fashion, as evidenced by the fact I still wore jeans and Adidas trainer. Page 3, Supergirl's origin is compact and told in two pages, but he's crying out for expansion. The science of a chunk of the planet being hurled away from an exploding planet is just about acceptable, if implausible. But the idea that a bubble of Ur came with us is, frankly, ridiculous. And one can imagine that if Julius Schwartz had edited this story, this wouldn't have been allowed to stand. In fact, when this tale was expanded upon in Action Comics 316 in 1964, it would be established that the city was covered in a plastic bubble that kept the Ur in. How this air was recycled, I don't believe, was ever explained. It's also very lucky that zor had a huge roll of lead to place on the floor... ...as a covering. Mm. That was lucky, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Oh, my lab just
0: happens to have some lead flooring. Yeah, it was very
1: lucky that there was a big bubble of air and a working food machine.
0: Yeah, it was very, very, very fortunate. There was also something that was a real head-scratcher. Mm. I thought... kryptonite that can kill Superman was due to the explosion making the fragments of Krypton radioactive and harmful to natives of the planet, right? Mm -hmm. The floor of Argo City, as it would go on to be named, never exploded, and therefore shouldn't be radioactive.
1: No, but it's still a fragment of the explosion.
0: But it didn't go... mm.
1: If you think about it, what they're living on is essentially a large... Chunk of, of what exploded off it, so we still have the radiation from the explosion because it was part of it. You think? Yeah. See, so if you smash a glass, yeah, and take one of those shards of glass, that's what they're living on. Right. So it was still part of that smash. Right. But it's still fun. broken. Yeah. So it would still be radiated. Like our family, yeah. but still good. Hmm. Still good.
0: I do like Lilo and Stitch. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I do apologise. Um, page four, I like that Kara's mum and dad have to learn English in the space of a week. Kara's mum was not named in this story, but would go on to be called Allura. Likewise, the city will be called Argo City. I like that the name is, she's alluring. Mm. So I like that name. The similar thing will be applied to Lex Luthor's wife in a future story. She will have a name that, that is similar to that. Okay. Look forward to that.
1: All right, well.
0: Um the inhabitants of Argo City dying slowly over a course of a month is actually quite chilling when you think about it. Yeah. In the middle of this quite happy story about a young girl for showing up on earth and going, I'm your cousin and Super going, I'm not alone anymore. <laughs> oh by the way, my entire family and friends died.
1: When when did Argo City become part of Cando?
0: Do you know, I don't remember if Argo City was part of Kando, because Kando's a bottle city in his fortress. So Argo City can't be part of Kando, because Argo City blows up here.
1: Okay, but in in newer stuff, yeah. you take Superman Brainiac, for example, mm-hmm. Kando was either where Supergirl lived or just outside of where Supergirl lived.
0: In, so you want about the Jeff Loeb retelling of this.
1: Well, the the from Because New Krypton Yeah. brings back her parents.
0: Well, it's established in a story later than this. I mean, I'll mention it later on, but her parents survive. Yeah. Rather implausibly. Mm. But they do. I, don't, I don't think Argo City was ever a part of Kandor.
1: Because I know that Supergirl and her parents are associated with Kandor to the point where either she lives there or lived near them.
0: Yeah, in New Krypton. Mm. Do you know, I don't remember. That just may be a post-crisis... Or post-infinite crisis yeah. change that I don't recall. Um, page five. You know, having Kara live with Clark would have been a very interesting development. Because the reasons that he gives are quite spurious as to why you can't have her live with him, innit? Yeah. Um, it wouldn't have had to interfere with stories, because Clark could still have her work in secret, but she could have run cover for him. Sending him to an orphan, he a bit cruel. Surely Superman could have taken her to the orphanage and then have them find out she was Clark's cousin. Clark shows up and takes her in, kind of like Batman and Robin. And this would have been a very interesting change to the setup of the Superman strip.
1: Well, it did seem quite cruel like, oh, you've gone through so much and you just go on through that, that rocket trip to get down and we, we're together and <laughs> we're two Kryptonians and get to that orphanage. Yeah, bugger off. Yeah. You live in an orphanage. Oh, I think it would have been nice to have a live with Clark. Gotta pick me up some ladies and I can't have you interfering. <laughs> you think that's what it was yeah. <laughs> um of I going off with that Batman fella so uh... so uh,
0: I'm on the market girls you want some man of steel hey girl <laughs> um I do wonder if there's an alternate reality out there where George Reeves didn't die and production of the eighth season of The Adventures of Superman had gone ahead as it was planned to do you think we would have gotten a Supergirl episode Probably. Because this was only 1959, so they would have had a season in
1: 1959.
0: Mm. I think that's that would have been interesting to have a Supergirl episode. Alas, it never was. Page six. I can understand keeping Supergirl a secret at this point, despite her superpowers, she's still a minor, but the LL name is just a huge coincidence, isn't
1: it? A huge coincidence. Such a huge coincidence that Superman had to point out. It was a huge coincidence. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Which was> Gee, <laughs> Lana Lang, <laughs> Lois Lane, Linda Lee, golly, <laughs> great guns. <laughs> uh, page seven. You mean
0: your sister pointed this out as well? Supergirl is shown to a room in the orphanage and promptly fixes everything from the broken mirror to the wonky bed. She even dusts. How's Linda going to explain all the fixes in her room? Um, she's very crafty. Because it's quite a shonky room that they have give her. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't think that this may be the best orphanage in the
1: world, Clark. <laughs> Look at that bed. Yeah. What a what a mess. Um. I suppose the orange walls liven it up. <laughs> yeah, they become yellow. And the green curtains. And the green
0: curtains. Yes. Quite shocking, in many ways. Uh. All, all that being said, I thought this was charming and thoroughly entertaining for pre-teen readers of the time. Supergirl is obviously designed to give young girl readers an identified role model in much the same way as Superman has developed into a role model for boys. Giving Kara the age of 14 puts her pretty much in the same age bracket as the readers, and her appearance and physical form are pretty normal and not overtly sexualised, appropriate for the time, and a marked contrast to the 2004 reboot by Jeff Loeb and Michael Turner, where Kara spent most of the first issue naked. Way to appeal to the female demographic,
1: fellas. And yet it's still on the... What I like about it was she speaks Kryptonian and is panicking about everything. Yeah, because she don't know where she is. But then there's the whole naked thing. Yeah, which and is a bit... And then the whole skimpy costume made by Martha Kent.
0: Yeah, I can't see Martha Kent making that. Mm. That was a bit off. Um, there are some moments of silliness, which I think we've pointed out. Oh, yeah. But the character of Kara zor is so charming and sweet that the reader, whether boy or girl, can't help but be enchanted by her. I know as a preteen, I always have a soft spot for Supergirl. Largely, uh, I suspect, due to both the Helen Slater movie and the hot pants she was wearing at the time that I was reading her stories. Ah, Supergirl in hot pants. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's some genuine pathos in this story, as well as Kara learns that her friends and family are probably dead, and Superman shows a genuine moment of sadness with her. Before
1: quickly brushing before her off. Before quickly
0: brushing her off. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but he, he does accept her into, into his life, I suppose. There's an undeniable Silver Age goofiness to this story, but this is another story I feel would have benefited from an expanded page count, as in this case, eight isn't enough. Even with 12 pages, more could have been done with the Kryptonians and the new relationship between Superman and Supergirl. That said, this is an important moment in the life of Superman, and a great new character has been added to the mix. And as others have pointed out, he's still the last son of Krypta. References this week included Superman from Serial to Serial by Gary Grossman, Superman in the 50s, Superman from the 30s to the 70s, The Krypton Companion edited by Michael Urie, The Supergirl Archives Volume 2, The Great Superman Book by Michael Fleischer, and the website Superman Through the Ages, available at site.supermanthroughtheages.com, Comic Book Resources, The Evolution of Kryptonite at goodcomics.comicbootresources.com when we first met The Evolution of Green and Red Kryptonite, and Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at www.dcindexes.com Next week The Untold Story of Red Kryptonite from Superman 139 The Death of Superman from Superman 149 The Showdown between Luther and Superman from Superman issue 164 and The Sweetheart Superman Forgot from Superman 165 It's a date which is what they used to say in old DC comics RB Squirt yes which is I don't think they said that in old Superman comedy. I don't think so. uh, we hope you enjoyed that one as much as we did I had a blast with that one yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed that one and we'll see you next week for Superman in the 60s part 3 of Happy Birthday Superman bye 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 his comics is that the devil will make work for idle hands to do production and all opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and you probably shouldn't take them too seriously all music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only and no infringement is intended. Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show which is a source of much consternation new episodes drop every Thursday over at two twotruefreaks.libson.com which is spelt L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they have discussed about on the show, you can email them at hey Kids Comics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website www.haykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, our one word, as the first name and Comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.